You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. 2 Kings chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. We've been talking about uh, getting your life in order. And uh, we looked a couple of weeks ago at what that meant financially. As we go into 2023, where they're projecting uh, possibly a recession, global recession. And we talked about getting your life in order there. We talked last week, uh, like Hezekiah, who removed the high places. He went in and began to clean up the nation of Israel. Sometimes you and I going into a new year, there's some things in our life we need to get rid of. We need to clean up. We need to get our lives in order. What does it mean to have a life in order? What does that even mean? Well, in Second Kings chapter 20, we meet a man by the name of Hezekiah. Everybody look this way. This man, Hezekiah, 1% of the entire Bible is dedicated to King Hezekiah. I thought that was interesting. 1% of the Bible is dedicated, the Word of God, to this man by the name of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah comes out of a bad lineage in some ways, as far as immediately as Father Ahaz was a wicked king. He did a lot of wicked things. He did not model before Hezekiah a godly king. And so Hezekiah comes on the tail end of his father Ahaz, who's been a very, very wicked man. These are not the best of times for the nation of Israel. Uh, in fact, God is judging the northern kingdom of, of Israel, the ten tribes, by the invasion of the Assyrian army. And God will eventually judge the uh, southern kingdom of Judah by the invasion of the Babylonian army. These are not good times. But Hezekiah is an interesting king. When he comes to power, he cleans up, tears down the high places, these places of idolatry. He begins to clean up Israel. He begins to get everything ready. Now, everybody stay with me here. Pay attention. This is important. But in the midst of all of this reformation, we come to 2 Kings chapter 20. Now, I want us to pick up at verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill... And he was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. You see it? Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall. He prayed to the Lord, Lord, remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully with wholehearted devotion, have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back. Tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says. I have heard your prayers. And what? Seen your tears. Everybody look this way. When you and I are weighed heavy with a problem, a difficulty, when we go to God in prayer, and especially when we go in tears, let me tell you something. God hears your prayer. He knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. And all God's people said, 
Amen. God says here, he says to Isaiah, you go tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will what? I will heal you. On the third day from now on, you will go on the third day from now, you will go up to the temple. I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyrians. I will descend this, defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We give you all the glory and honor. And Lord, everything now is in your honor and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Frederick. Anthony Ravi Kumar Zacharias was born in India in 1946. He was an evangelical minister. He was a premier apologetist, perhaps one of the best apologetists, apologists in the world at his time. He, um, he had two daughters... He had one son. His daughter Naomi Zacharias is one of the one of the finest female teachers that I have ever heard in my entire life. Ravi, as you and I know him, died at 74 years of age. He died of cancer. Christianity Today said of Ravi Zacharias. When he died in May, he was praised for his faithful witness, his commitment to the truth, his personal integrity. Now it is clear that offstage, this man, Ravi Zacharias, so long admired by Christians around the world, abused numerous women and manipulated those around him to turn a blind eye. When I've listened to discussions, even by people that I have great respect in the evangelical community, I've heard them discuss the case of Ravi Zacharias because in many ways it kind of sent a little bit of an earthquake, a tremor through the evangelical Christian. It sent a a tremor through the entire Christian community around the world. This man who had defended the gospel had now been discovered to have been living a double life. Many people, Christians, spiritual leaders said, um, well, sexual addiction. This was a sexual addiction. Some said this was a psychiatric sickness. Some said that he was never saved, that maybe he was never saved. But as I've listened to this, I thought to myself, where in the discussion is any talk of the enemy? We talk about his addictions. We talk about his double life. We talk about the fact of whether he was saved or not. But I've never heard in that discussion a talk about our enemy who comes to kill, 
to steal, to destroy. And I thought to myself, I thought Satan seeks to destroy those who represent the greatest threat to the kingdom of darkness. Did it ever occur to us that Ravi Zacharias failed because he failed in the quiet places of his life? But he failed because he underestimated his enemy, and people never bring that up. They never talk about the enemy. In fact, I wrote this down. This is a frightening statement. Listen to this, parent. That giftedness that you see in your child is a bullseye on the head of your child when it comes to your enemy, Satan. Satan will do everything he can. I think sometimes he goes after those gifted individuals, those people that seem to be somewhat of an anomaly. They're, they're peculiar, they're different, they're gifted. And often the enemy will go after those. I wrote down, no doubt, Robbie's life was in disorder in the private areas. There was no accountability in Robbie Zacharias's life. He had unbridled power with no accountability. He had popularity. He had notoriety with no accountability. He had places of addiction, idolatry, sinful carnal strongholds in his life. He failed to tear down the strong high places in his life. He never got help. And listen... Power corrupts and absolute power will corrupt absolutely. You and I need accountability. That's why we go to church. Isn't that true? So, so here we have, here we have what I believe is, and I'm having, a, now I'm having a, we have a, a, a declaration here, and I, hopefully the slide is up there, that you and I need to get our house in order. And you may say, well, you know, what does that mean? I, I, I thought about this, and I want you to hear me here. God was not asking Hezekiah to do something that Hezekiah could not do. God was not asking Hezekiah to do something that he did not have the know-how or he did not have the resources. God gave him everything. Listen, you may say, well, two weeks ago, you talked about the possibility of a global recession, of uh, diminishing a currency issue with our U.S. dollar. You talked about some of the shortages that we may face. Many, 70% of economists around the world said we don't even know what that looks like. But let me tell you, if God tells you and I to get our lives in order financially, He gives us the know-how and the wisdom and everything we need to do that. Two weeks ago, we looked at that very issue. Last week, we looked about going, at your, going to your life and looking at some of the you know, the high places, and boy, this is, uh, this as usual, I need somebody, I need Bethany up here to get me through. Okay, there we go. Um, but anyway, for you and I to get our house in order, to get our lives in order, we have to understand that God does not ask us to do something that He doesn't equip us. He gives us everything we need to do that. He told Hezekiah, He said, Hezekiah, get your house in order, and I'm going to show you how to do that. And I wrote this down, another principle. You can only get into order what you have authority over. 
Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. A lot of us fail to get our lives, our marriages, our children, our homes, our life in order because we're too busy looking at other people's lives, right? God has not called you to get your neighbor's life in order. And if you've got grown children, God has not called you to get your children, your grown children's lives in order. God has called you first to get your life in order, your marriage in order, your home in order. If you've got a spouse that's not attending church, then your responsibility is to do everything that you can to get that husband, that wife, those children in church to get them in the Word of God, to see that they're saved. Too often we get called up in getting everybody's, everybody else's life in order. I'm trying to fix my husband. I'm trying to fix my kids, my grandkids. I'm trying to fix those people in my work environment. Listen, you can fix nobody, only God can. God's called you and I to get our house in order. He's not called you, I wrote this down, not to splinter brigade. You know, Jesus talked about those people that go around getting splinters out of everybody's eye when they got a beam in their own. You know, sometimes what we don't like in other people is what we know is in our own life. And that's the truth. You can only, principle here, you can only get into order what you have authority over. Willie, this is your favorite story. Willie loves this story. Back when I was in my first church, I was new to ministry. We were growing church. We got, people were being saved. But the WMU, there was a group of women, they wanted a, a Bible study. It was a Jimmy Swaggart Bible study on Revelation. Now let me tell you, Jimmy Swaggart and I are polar opposites theologically. And so I was against the study, and I told them that. Well, this was a church where a lot of pastors didn't last very long, and here I was, a young guy, my first church, and I don't know whether they thought, well, we're going to test his authority or whatever. I said, listen, we're not, you're not going to do that Jimmy Swaggart Bible study on the book of Revelation. We have too many tools that are in line with what we believe as Southern Baptists, and we're not going to do that. There's too much baggage with that. I don't trust it. I don't want to do it. Well, man, they threw a fit. The women threw a fit. And they gathered up in a Sunday school classroom one evening, and they wanted to meet with the pastor. I said, I'm not going to meet with you. I've already told you my opinion. So the deacons, many of them, their wives were in that meeting. The deacons met in another room. And they said, we got to do something. Man, this is a mess. And so finally an old farmer, a dear friend of mine, he came over, and I was sitting out on my porch in the swing playing my guitar watching them lights on over there at the church because we live next door to it. And I was playing my guitar, and he came over and sat down and said, Brother Jeff, he said, would you do me a favor? I said, yes. He said, would you agree to meet with these, uh, with these women? And I said, yes, I will, but first I want to meet with you men. And I walked into that meeting, and all the deacons were there. And I walked in, and I didn't say a word. I walked over to one deacon, and I he was sitting down. I looked at him and I said, let me tell you something. Don't you ever tell my wife where she needs to be, that she needs to be in a meeting. Do you understand that? And I think they thought that this, you know, I was a 
pretty healthy boy back then. I think they thought I was getting ready to pop him in the mouth. And basically what I said to him was, that's my wife, and if I have something, if I have a meeting she needs to be in, I'll tell her, don't you tell her anything. You just deal with your own wife and she's in the other room. You know, God only calls you to be accountable and responsible and to put in order what you have authority over. Right? And so God tells Hezekiah, He says, Hezekiah, I want you to get your house in order. Now, let me, let me say this. He failed to do that. In fact, I, I don't know if that slide came up the next one up there. Well, go to the next one. Let me see. You may not have got it. And there it is right there. What does that say? He failed to finish well. Let me tell you, everybody look this way. He was dying. The prophet Isaiah, the premier prophet in the Old Testament, said, Hezekiah, God's got a message for you. God said, get your house in order. You're getting ready to die and you won't recover. And he walked out. The Bible said that Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, he turned his face toward the wall and he began to weep bitterly. And he began to remind God of all the good things that he had done. Begging God, God give me life. God heal me. Isaiah's on his way across the courtyard. As he gets across the courtyard, God stops him and says, go back and tell Hezekiah he's got 15 more years of life. Let me ask you something. If you had 15, you're on your deathbed. Doctor says there's no hope. They've called the family in, and all of a sudden I walk in your pastor and say, hey, listen, God has a message for you. He's getting ready to heal you, and you've got 15 years of life left. Let me ask you something. How would you live it you know when I look out at a congregation I think to myself you know young people young people look at me do you know how quickly you're going to be my age like that college students you know how quickly you're going to be my age it's going to pass just like that you young married you young married, you know how quickly it's going to pass and you're going to be my age? Just like that. You middle-aged, you know how quickly you're going to be my age? Just like that. It's going to fly by, just in a matter of a moment. I thought to myself, in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 6, when Isaiah looked at Hezekiah and he said in verse 6, look at it, in 20 verse 6, he says here, he says, I, God says, I will add 15 years to your life. You know what I thought? I would have looked at Isaiah and I would have said, now let me tell you, this is the humanity. I would have said, does that mean 15 years exactly? Maybe 15 years, 11 months and 28 days? Isaiah, what did he mean? Does he mean 15 years from this moment? Because according to my calculations, that would be this month, this day, this year. Did he mean exactly? The reality is that he was a poor steward of the time God gave him. And I'm going to show you in a moment. 
You know, there's a book called The Obstacle in Our Way. It's written by a man by the name of Ryan Holiday. It was endorsed by Nick Saban. And I thought, this is a strange book for Coach Saban, this Hall of Famer from Alabama, Tide. This is strange for him to endorse this. The Obstacle in Our Way by Ryan Holiday. Listen to what he said. This shook me. He suggested in this book that we meditate on our mortality. I want you to think about that. That we meditate on our mortality. I've got a stint in the Widowmaker. 99% block, walking miracle. Two years ago was in surgery. Two years ago now, got a second lease on life. Couldn't be here for Christmas that year. Couldn't help with the community meal. Couldn't do anything. I, I often will deal with a measure of chest pain. Sometimes wondering, you know, the doctor said when he put the stent in, he said there were a couple other places. But he said, I think we can handle that with diet. He said, I thought about open heart, which would be a triple. Jeffrey Chaplin, the Baptist, when I came out, was there in the hallway. He met the, as they were willing me out, he was standing there. He had access in a way that the other family did. And I looked at him and I laughed and I said, son, were you worried? He said, well, dad, sometimes when they come up here, they don't come back. Listen to that statement again. Meditate on our mortality, on our mortality. What does that mean? That means that I recognize it is appointed unto man once to die, after that the judgment, and I meditate on the day that I will die. I think about my life as flying quickly. I don't have a lot of time, and I want to invest every day because I, hey listen you young people and college students you know what you think got plenty of time you know how many people my you know how many of my college and high school friends are not alive today my college roommate's dead my college roommate was one of my groomsmen he's dead one of the best looking guys in the high school class he was one of those guys that had a full beard in ninth grade Big old guy. He's dead. When I meditate on my mortality, it's not what, undoubtedly it wasn't what King Hezekiah did. I think that life is limited. Dr. Johnson, he was a, he's recognized as Dr. Johnson. He was an English writer in the 1700s. He's buried in Westminster Abbey, Ledge. I remember when you and I and Sheila and the kids, we were walking in Westminster Abbey, and I said, you're standing on the graves of great men and women. He's buried in Westminster, in Westminster Abbey. He was known as Dr. Johnson, an English writer in the 1700s. He made this statement. He said, when a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, which means two weeks in British jargon, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. 
Now think about that for a moment. Listen to what he said. When a man knows he's to be hanged in two weeks, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. You see, a lot of you, your mind may wonder right now. But if you were on your deathbed and you were talking to me like a woman who called this past week, I got a, I got a message through Facebook Messenger. And let me tell you, this is not your time to catch up on your phone or to catch up on fellowship. This is your time to listen. But I had a woman call me from North Carolina. She didn't call me. First, she said a Facebook Messenger. And it basically said this. It said, my life, I am worried about my salvation. I don't know whether I'm saved. And I'm struggling right now in my family. And I need help. This is my number. Would you call me? And I called her. She wasn't at home. A little while later, she called back. And her and her husband sitting in the living room, she wept and she cried. And I led her down the Roman road, led her to Christ, talked to her, counseled her about some problems in her family, and we fellowshiped. And at a certain point, she got down on her knees, her and her husband, and she prayed and asked Christ to come into her life. And since then, the responses have been nothing but positive how God's turned her life. Why? Listen, because she was contemplating her mortality. She was meditating on it. And you know what she was saying? I want to be ready. One writer said this. He said, death doesn't make life pointless, but rather purposeful. You see, some of you, you've never had a scare. You, you take for granted that you've got plenty of time, that life will, you, you've got your life all planned out, you're planning it out. You've got your education, your career, you've got all this agenda that you've put out there, and somehow you convinced yourself that, that, that you're not uh, accountable to use it well. Well, the truth of the matter is, do you know how many people have left church that I've buried and died in a car accident on the way home? Stood with a young dad years ago. He was dying of leukemia. And there kind of finally came that moment when his dad, his dad walked out and looked at me. And his son was a young man. He was, had a beautiful family. He had a little girl that won every, she, they carried her to every beauty pageant. She won every beauty, beauty pageant. She went everywhere, other states, breathtakingly beautiful. This young man, big strapping, good looking guy had leukemia and he was dying. His dad walked out at a certain point, I'll never forget, and he looked at me and his dad was weeping. And he said, Brother Jeff, he said, this may be wrong, but would you pray that God would go ahead and take my son home? Because I can't bear this anymore. And me and that dad knelt down over that 20-something-year-old son, that dad with a, with a wife and a child, and we prayed and said, God, if it be your will, would you take him home now? In a matter of no time, God took that young man home to be with the Lord. Are you trashing your life? Throwing it away? Thinking that you've got a whole life ahead of you? Mark chapter 8, 35 and 36, Jesus said this, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his or her life for me, for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world and lose their soul? I can't tell you who won the national championship five years ago. 
I can't necessarily tell you who discovered DNA. I cannot tell you who was the MVP in the Super Bowl last year. I can't tell you who won the Heisman Trophy two or three years ago. I can't tell you who won the Academy Awards, but I can tell you who had an influence on my life. I've seen many a senior adult not finish well. They no longer spend time with their grown children. They don't have time to invest in their children. They get caught up in their own agenda. And before long, they're so consumed with their own personal life, they don't have time for their kids anymore. My friend, I'm a dad to my kids to the day I take my last breath. Hezekiah failed. How do we know that? He failed with his enemies. And I don't know that I have time. I'm about out of time. But in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 12 through 19, let me just explain it to you. Everybody look this way. He fails in two ways. Number one, he fails with his enemies. Let me, now, everybody listen closely. And you can go back and read it later on. God heals him. He gets well. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians send a delegation to, to basically pay their respects to King Hezekiah, to say to him, we're glad that you're well. Hezekiah, what Hezekiah does, the Babylonians will wipe out the Assyrians. That's world history. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar will become the world power. So you might say they were staking out the southern kingdom of Judah, which the Assyrians had not been able to take under Sennacherib. So Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians send a delegation to pay their respects. When they get there, they find King Hezekiah well. He's well. And guess what he does? Everybody listen. He shows this delegation all his wealth, all his riches. He walks them through the palace and he throws... He he shows them the gold, the silver, the furnishings. He shows them all of his riches, everything. He carries them to as close as they can get to the temple, and somehow he does it. He goes into the most intimate, personal place. This man that had torn down the high places, this man that was considered by the Bible to be the greatest king of Israel of all time, he carries the Babylonians and he shows them all the utensils and the riches of the temple. And you know what Isaiah does? Isaiah comes to the throne room, to the palace. And he walks into King Hezekiah and he says, Hezekiah, do I understand correctly that you took our future enemy and you showed him everything? And in that moment, listen, in fact, let me just show you this. In 2 Kings 20, this is so important. Isaiah in 2 Kings 20 says this in verse 16. 2 Kings 20, verse 16. And I'll close in a moment. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace, all that your fathers have stored up until this day, will be carried off where? To where? To Babylon. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs 
which is what we believe happened to Daniel in the palace of the king of the Babylonians. Look at verse 19. Watch this. Every parent, look at this. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, oh, God help us. What do you think? Will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? The ultimate selfish act, as long as I'm happy in my narcissistic life, and as long as everything goes well while I'm alive, I don't give a crap what happens to the nation after I'm gone. I think it was John Adams that said to Congress, he said, we put this nation in slavery either by way of the sword or by way of debt. And we've created a nation that can no longer function in its present form economically. He failed with his enemy. He carried his enemy into the most intimate places, showed him everything. Hey, you know what I thought when I read this? I thought about Samson and Delilah. I thought about Delilah. I thought about the Philistines. And I thought about the enemy of Israel. When, when, when the enemy came to Delilah and they said, find out the secret of his strength. And when Samson at one point wakes up with his head woven into the, to the, to the loom, I thought, wake up! But he didn't. And finally, in one moment of sexual excitement, enticement, one moment of passion where many old men and women fail now. They get so caught up in their love life, they don't have time to be a parent anymore. In that moment, the Bible says that Delilah cut it. She called somebody. They cut the locks of his hair. He was a Nazarite, and his hair was part of his strength. And they cut his hair. And then you remember the Philistines came in. And the Bible said that Samson stood up and he did what he thought he had done so many times. He would fight against his enemy. But when he got up, he had no strength. And listen to this. He did not know that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. You can't survive you watching by live stream, you can't survive 2023 walking like some of you are walking now. You need that intimate place. Has it ever occurred to you and I that Judas had to show the enemy where Jesus was in order to capture him? My friend, you and I need that war room, that closet, that place where we go, where we get alone with God. And listen, the enemy, you have a sign up there that says, no trespassing. And you may say, I can't be in a closet. Marge says this. She said one time to her boss, Marge Seals, she said to her boss, she said, you people take a smoking break, I'll take a Bible break. And I'll go sit in my car and I'll spend some time in the Word of God and in prayer. Secondly, he failed with his family. And let me close with this. He had a son three years later named Manasseh. Manasseh became the king. Now everybody listen. He became the king at 12 years of age. Bar Mitzvah, the Jew, is bar under Mitzvah, the law, under the law. So he was legally an adult. 
He took the reign after the death of Hezekiah, Manasseh, and became the king, and he reigned for 55 years. Everybody look this way. Hezekiah, the Bible says, was the, was the best king, the best king that Israel ever had. You want to guess who the worst king was? His son. He threw away 15 years. He had 15 years left to invest into his son. But instead, the Bible said that 12-year-old Manasseh was a spoiled brat. He undoubtedly parented with his heart rather than his head. He didn't prepare his son for greatness, for leadership. He wasn't thinking about a legacy. He just simply was spoiling him rotten. And the Bible said that Manasseh came to reign and he rebuilt all the high places. He put all that stuff that his father had tore down, he put it back up. And he led the nation to such debauchery that Ezekiel said, if Noah, Daniel, and he named another, he said, if they prayed, I still wouldn't repent. Theodore Roosevelt had severe asthma. When he was a child, any exertion would put him in bed for weeks. His father one day said to Theodore Roosevelt, he said, son, you've got the mind, but not the body. His father went on to say to him, I will give you the tools to make your body. And the historians say that he did. He uh, literally, he began to invest in his son. Roosevelt lost his wife, his mom close together. He had uh, numerous political enemies. He had repeated assassination attempts. He dealt with foreign wars. But they said that his body was ready for the leadership of, of a nation. Hezekiah failed there. I'm not reading my phone, but since I won't be preaching next week, let me see if I can find this because I thought, how sad. I read this. On one occasion, I threw myself off a wooden staircase, hurling myself to the ground. I was pregnant. I was trying to get my husband's attention. On another occasion, I threw myself against a glass display ca uh, cabinet. While on another occasion I, occasion, I slashed my wrist with a razor blade. On another occasion, I cut myself with a serrated edge of a lemon slicer. On another occasion, in a heated argument with my husband, I picked up a pen knife lying on a dresser and I cut my chest and my thighs. I was bleeding and my husband did not care. As ever, he thought I was faking my problem. I had scars and wounds all over my body, and I felt so alone. The words of Princess Di. I don't care much for the King of England. I wouldn't care if the whole mess come collapsing, falling down. I have a real hard time with the King who is carrying on an adulterous relationship. Andy Griffin, though he was great as he was, was carrying on a 
an adulterous relationship with Helen Crump, true. Helen Crump said, who never married, never had children, said of Andy Griffith, he proposed to me one, two, maybe three times while he was still married with two children. The reality is, is that you and I have a short time on this earth. And the question will be how we finish. Will we finish well? Parent, you have a narrow window of opportunity to pour into your children. You may say, well, I've got, I've got plenty of time. No, you don't. That young man, Tim, that died of leukemia, a big, healthy, strapping young man, he didn't have any more time. And I was with him when he called the beauty contest winner over and over again. I was with him when he called his little girl by his bedside and told her that he was dying and gave, him, gave her his last instructions. She was five years old before he died. Parent, you have today. Husband, wife, you have today. You have this opportunity, this hour, in this moment. Young people, college students, you have right now. You may not have till graduation. Right now, this moment. To invest in a world that is desperately more than ever before crying out because they are afraid. And like the woman in North Carolina crying out and asking, help me. Let's pray. And you just go ahead and stand where you are. Our Heavenly Father, dear Lord, I've preached with everything in me this morning. I just felt a burden, a heaviness. And Lord, I'm not here as if I'm sinless, as if I'm faultless, blameless. Lord, there are the battles and the struggles that I go through in life. And Lord, sometimes I'm so ashamed of myself. So Lord, first of all, I ask you, dear Lord, to forgive me, cleanse me. As I said a moment ago, before I started preaching, Lord, let me be a tool. Lord, help me to get my life in order. Help Sheila and I to get our home, our marriage, our lives in order. Help me to be the dad that I need to be to my four kids, Amy, Emily, Ledge, and Jeffrey. Help me to be the father-in-law that I need to be to Matt, to Corey, to Alicia, to Megan. Help me to be the grandfather that I need to be to Sam and Judah, Eden, Cain, and Issachate, Elam. Parker Rose and Zeke. Help me to be the dad that I need to be to Emma Grayson, Sophie. Help me to be the granddad that I need to be to, and I meant granddad to Emma Grayson, Sophie. Help me to be the granddad that I need to be to Ethan, Caleb, and Titus. Help me to be the granddad that I need to be to Silas and August and Aaron. Help me to be the pastor that I need to be to this congregation. Because sometimes I feel like I failed them. And God, I pray that all of us, as we come to the end of this year, as we look to this new year, that we draw a circle somewhere in a private place, whether we use a piece of chalk or whether we go out stand in dirt in a circle, draw a circle around our feet, say, God, let this begin in me. 
some husbands, some wives, they need to get back to the business of trying to win that spouse to Christ. For some moms, some dads, they need to repent and apologize and they need to be that spiritual leader in the home. Need to take up, take up the reins and begin to leave that Bible where children will see that commitment to daily being in the Word of God, daily being in prayer. Andy Stanley said a picture that he would never forget of Charles Stanley was that I saw my dad every day on his knees praying. May grandparents be that. May we leave our self-consumed, self-absorbed lives and begin to minister sometimes to grown children who need the encouragement of a parent. I used to love that private, quiet time I'd have with my dad, father and son, so I'd pour out my heart. I don't have that much anymore. Lord, may we be repentant and broken. May we realize that we're living in very, very difficult times. May we never take a day for granted. May we get up every morning and say, Lord, this is the day that You've made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, use me as a tool in Your hand. And Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know You, they're not a Christian, they've never surrendered their life to Christ, come under the repentance of sin and said, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. No man can preach the gospel, evangelism, any better than the man who will stand here next week. But God forbid that we have our Christmas gatherings and we watch a lot of grown children and grandchildren show up who didn't bother to come to church. May, we, may you give us enough intestinal fortitude as parents and grandparents to say this, if you're going to come to my house for Christmas lunch, bring a church bulletin with you. Lord, time short. And Lord, God, if you're speaking to the heart of man or woman, that today they would be saved. And if they need to recommit or rededicate, that they would do that, whatever it may be. Maybe to unite and be a part of this church, quit visiting. I told a man a while back that uh, talked to me about this nation getting it straightened up. And I, I made a, some strong comments to him. I haven't seen him since. But Lord, we can't straighten up anything. You hadn't called us to fix anything. You'll fix it. You've just called us to get our house and what's in our authority in order. Lord, we love you and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You